We're trying some new things to make sure that as an audience you can hear what we're saying from the stage the last couple of weeks. The blower, which keeps us all cool, has influenced the ability for us to hear. So I want to say two things about that. One, I'm sorry for being Stephen Furtick today, if you know who that is, my bad, Um, and walking with the handheld. That's different for me. But two, what we've noticed is that the people in the front can hear better than in the back. So if you can't hear me now the way I'm speaking through the mic, it might just mean that you have to move forward in some rows in order to, to hear. And yes, that is just shameless in the way that we're saying we could all just sit up front together. Um, but we're doing our best in order to make sure that we, as we're working with an air conditioner, can hear one another. Uh, I just want to start with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in. Father, I pray that you would take Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and that you would speak it into our hearts and minds today in a way that transforms the way that we think and live. That in some ways, Jesus, I know the the harder of your text are the ones that we get to dwell on the most because they exist to illustrate the space that we actually live in. So speak to us through this time, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. We'll be going to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. If you have a Bible in front of you and you want to turn to that, uh, you can follow along in that way. We're not going to have it on slides on the screen today because I brought visual illustrations for you to look at instead. I know what you're thinking. You're like, holy ship. Got you. Dad jokes for days. My daughter loves it, right? So Jose would wake up every morning... And his routine was the same. Go to this giant kitchen and get a cup of cafe au lait. And as the, the steam was rolling off the top of the cup, he would grab a, a breakfast croissant from his wife Lorena as she was diligently working on making breakfast for the 50 children who would walk into the cafeteria out of their dorms. And Jose would exit the cafeteria and walk across to this carpentry shop and he would unlock the padlock and he would open the door and inside he would see his sanctuary filled with tools, hammers, nails, A few saws, the smell of wood just exuding from this place. He was home. And he would begin to set the tools out and strategically in front of each little workstation, he would place the remnants of what was going to be a ship. Each boy had one. They were given a ship in parts when they came to the children's home, dropped off for so many different reasons, almost all the the same. Instead of with excitement, there was the fear of the realization that whatever they had been told before they came here wasn't true. The party wasn't going to be hosted here. The afternoon wasn't going to end with a return home. They were here to live. Because some type of chaos had entered into their circumstance and they weren't going home. 
hearing the first cry, the first day that he had shown up as a caregiver, Hosea thought, I have to have an answer to this. And so he got some scraps of wood. And he made a workshop. And each boy that would be dropped off after they walked out of this office, he would wrap his arm around their shoulders and walk them into his workshop and show them his ship that was finished and their ship that hadn't been started. And he would say, I know you don't know why you're here and you feel like your life is this wreckage right now. But if you will get up in the morning and you will come and join me, I will teach you how to build your ship. And when it's time for you to leave, you'll be the captain. And so each morning he would unlock the shop and he would set out the tools and the boys would shuffle into the cafeteria and force their breakfast down quickly because they needed to get to Jose. Before school started, they needed to see how much farther they could get with the meticulous work on their ship. And then they would run into the shop and as they would come in, they would smell the mixture of wood and coffee and he would give them instructions for the day. And every instruction came with some value, some cultural aspect to what it would mean to be a man in this Hispanic culture. And he would say, great captains need to know the front of the ship from the back of the ship and today you're going to start working on the front of the ship because you're going to need to know where you want it to face do you know where you're going and that's all he would say and then they would get to work but on this day things were different Jose couldn't find it in him to give direction to the boys because as they walked in he knew what he had to do next Almost every boy when they walked into the shop had the same response. I love the ship, but what I really want to do is I want to play with Jose's drill. Because all little kids just want to play with a drill. And so they would each come in and they would look at his tools and they would pick the drill up every day. And they would pretend to shoot each other, of course. And they would hold it up in the air. And they would laugh and they would giggle. But on this day the drill wasn't there because it had been packed away. Because as soon as the boys got on the bus to go to school, Jose would head to school himself, but not before he stopped by a local pawn shop and sold his drill to pay for his own daughter to go to class. Because in the city where he lived, everything after sixth grade was private school. And so while every morning he was waking up and giving away all of his wealth and his resources into orphaned boys, he didn't have enough to take care of his own daughter. And so this morning he was going to hawk the drill to get her to school. And he walked out of that store with enough pesos in hand to pay for his little girl to go through her seventh grade year. These stories destroy my theology. Like to the place where I have to sit and wrestle with God because I don't understand why so many of my friends and at times myself could open up a shed or a shop and have the drill of our choice. 
Because the day after Thanksgiving, you can pick up any of them that you want. And yet in this space, this man who is investing everything doesn't have enough to keep the drill and send his daughter to school. Like it, it messes with my belief in God because I wonder why resources aren't overwhelmingly being given to Jose in a construct where we believe that God is sovereign. Right? That's my question. And you're welcome to wrestle with it. You're welcome to mess with it too. Because if you have any international experience, if you have any experience with poverty, if you have any experience with trauma and brokenness, at some point your theology will lead you into this space. If God has all this stuff, why don't they have any of it? And it's maddening. Thankfully for me, I'm not alone. Because the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's struggling too. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 Begins in verse 1. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires. But God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. He then explains what is happening in verse 3. He says, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? If we break this down, the teacher is creating a very, very dark picture. I have had friends who have birthed stillborn children. I have had friends who have miscarried. That's not something to mess around with. That's not something that you write into a word that is going to exist forever and ever flippantly, right? This is the word of the Lord. You don't just write this as in, oh, it's just like that, and flippantly say that living a life and having wealth and strangers taking it and having children who do not even want to be at your burial is the same at coming into this world without breath unless it is that dark. And so this writer is saying, when you work and toil and gather and gather and it is stolen from you and you can't make sense of it and you do not see the prosperity in your own life and you have hundreds of children over 2,000 years, like you get to be the first 2,000 year old man. I don't know why that sounds good. And you get a hundred children and if none of them want anything to do with you, you might as well have never existed because the darkness that you're going to enter into mentally and emotionally is going to be so overwhelming that you're going to wish you had never breathed life. And this is this is what the preacher is wrestling with. Why, if we get so much, does it then get taken away? I couldn't figure it out. Especially if you go back to Ephesians 5 
and see that the verses just before this say God's gift to man is to work and to see the fruit of his work and to invest his fruit into the world around him this is God's gift to him and then he immediately says and then there's a great evil it wasn't until I started to recognize that Ecclesiastes 6 is a non-Jesus covenant pursuit of humanity. Without Jesus, this feels meaningless. But there is a new covenant coming where Jesus says, don't store up your treasure on earth. Store it up in a place where it can't go away. But in addition to that, he says, if you have treasure, if you have wealth, if you have resources, if you have children, here are the greatest two things that you can do. Love me and love your neighbor as yourself. What if the key to this first part of Ecclesiastes is not that someone had wealth, it's that someone had wealth in such a way that they needed to protect it from the stranger because the stranger was never welcomed in as their neighbor. What if the danger of having 100 children is having 100 children who hate your religion or your legalism or your piousness or your expectations that their satisfaction only comes from your satisfaction. Sometimes we do that to our kids. We birth them into this world and then hope that they will give us hope. And then sadly they turn out to be just like us. A mess. And then we wonder, why did we have you? We don't say that to them. Some of them we say that to, and then they go to counseling, right? Or do drugs. Or both at the same time. Because we put this pressure and we say your value is determined by what you bring to me and my value. And so the, the preacher is saying there's no value in your wealth if it's protected in such a way that strangers know if they knocked on your door and asked you would not give it to them. And so instead they overpower you and they take it. And your children do not want to come to your funeral and they do not want to be there at the end of your life because you never lived with them. He says that is evil and meaningless. And Jesus says, my answer is, let the little children come to me and love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe you'll find meaning in that space. But the preacher's not finished. He then says, all man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. Anyone who has raised a teenage boy is like, yep. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This little piece of poetry here is put in to illustrate a word that I think we mistranslated here in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for appetite is the same Hebrew word for soul. And if you go back and read this and say, what is good 
for a man to do work and believe that that work is then going to feed his soul. Instead, his soul still hungers for more because the work does not satisfy what his soul is longing for. The wealth does not satisfy what his soul is longing for. The relationship does not satisfy what his soul is longing for because we just get hungry again. Maybe you can relate. If you are in any way addicted to tacos like I am addicted to tacos or Chipotle, you recognize the beauty of a burrito, you recognize the beauty of a burrito eaten, and then you recognize that six hours later you just want another burrito. Because you can't find a sustenance in what the mouth wants that will satisfy what the soul desires. That's what the preacher is struggling with. And then Jesus comes into the picture later and says, yeah, but I don't live on bread. I don't live on burritos. I live on the word. And the word feeds my soul. And the word nourishes my soul. And meaninglessness moves to meaning when we decide on a new covenant. And then he finishes up the passage and he says, whatever exists has already been named. This, those of you who want choice in things, this small group should be exciting this week. Whatever exists has already been named. And what man has been known, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning. Oh, poor preachers. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? The teacher again is asking the question, what, what's the point of knowing anything? If half the time what you know ends up not being what lays out, and if the other half of the time you look at it and think, well, if God had already preordained or had established this, or no matter what I did, I was going to end up on this path anyway, what's the point of knowing anything? What's the point of sitting around and talking about how it will work out? What's the point of my life if at the end no one is even going to remember anything that happened in my life? Unless... As T Steve mentioned last week, you just write it on a tombstone because you were actually killed by kisses by women who work at your office. And then years later, it's red because it's on your tombstone. How do you know your life is going to leave anything of worth when you don't know what the point of your life is, is what the teacher is asking. And if we don't know what the point of our life is, how can we look back and know what it's even worth? And Jesus says, I've just come that you can have life and have it to the full. I have come so that you can come and be with me forever. I have come so that when you have trouble in this place, you would know that I've overcome this place. There is news under the sun that doesn't have anything good in it. And then there is good news that gives us a future above the sun which is one of the little phrases that this author continually uses. He says, I've noticed an evil under the sun. He never says, I've noticed an evil beyond the sun. He never says, I've noticed an evil from the one who put the sun in its place. He says, I see this evil, and it's under the sun. And people work and toil, and they gain resources, and then others just steal it from them. 
and families are broken and don't even want to show up at each other's funerals. And we eat and consume not just food, but all things and hope that it will satisfy the desire inside and yet it just seems to grow. And we want to know what the point of all of it is and we just end up wandering even more. He says, I know under the sun there are these questions because it all feels meaningless. And then Jesus speaks back into all of them and says, but while you walk under the sun, you can live beyond it. And so store up your treasures somewhere else. How do we take action in that? First part of this verse, if you don't want life to be meaningless, just share what you have open-handedly. Invite everyone to be a neighbor and strangers don't have to steal. And in the second, when Jesus says that eating the word sustains your soul, my challenge is just nourish your soul. So share open-handedly and nourish your soul. Open the word during the week. Listen to it. Let it speak over you. Let it rain down on you. Let it be the thing that you eat when you're starving the most. It's better than Twitter feeds. Facebook doesn't work as well. And we can't trust anything on the news, right? So eat and nourish from the word and then he says at the end Jesus says instead of what you know who you know will direct what will happen under the sun after you are gone and so my action step for that is just to simply follow Jesus because who you know will direct what happens to your story after the sun, after the end, after the last meaningless breath, his story will be the one that will envelop your story. All the bags were packed. The team was ready. I had triple checked that everyone has a passport. All great mission trip coordinators know triple check that everyone has a passport and that it's valid because that's really bad when you get to a border. And that was when the email came. It was this really capitalized, bold subject line. One more thing. I didn't have space for any more things. I didn't have money for any more things. Our team had purchased all of the things. And they were in all of the bags. And they were for all of the children. But each week before I go on a trip, whether it's to Mexico or anywhere else, I send one email out to the director of a site and say, is there anything that your team needs? Because I've come to the realization over years, which is why we want to invest in you so deeply in the work that you're doing in Poland. What I've found in years is that if you invest in leadership, then they have the ability and the possibility to invest in humans that are around them. When we only invest in the humans that are in need, then the leaders run out of steam and they, don't, they can't go back to work. 
and they don't feel like they're empowered. And so I always send an email and say, is there anything that your team needs? And I got this response that said, we need some art supplies. And I'm like, for the kids or the adults? Like, for the adults, they like to paint, they like to draw. Art supplies it is. We need coffee. Of course you do. Everyone does. It is a global language. We need a couple of soccer balls for the leaders. Yes, they love playing. Okay, we need a volleyball. Huh. And can we have some pots and pans and a couple of ladles? Sure. So we had packed all of those things. And then it said one more thing. We leave in 12 hours. I don't have anything else, I don't think. But I click on the email. And it's from this particular site director. And she says... Oh, and by the way, if you happen to have a cordless drill laying around, we could use one. And I was standing in line at Chipotle when I read it, and I was like, um, well, I guess I'm not going to have a drill, because the only one I had left was mine. And I had to figure out a place to put it, and then I had to figure out how customs wouldn't take it, because that happens sometimes. And so instead, I decided to just throw it out there on the interwebs, right? Anyone have an extra drill just laying around? There was a guy standing behind me in the line at Chipotle who just happened to be looking at my Twitter account while we were standing in line together, oddly enough. And it said, anyone have a drill? And he looked over and he was like, like this one? And I was like, exactly like that one. And he was like, all right, I just ordered it. Just go pick it up at Lowe's on your way home. Okay, you want to buy my burrito too? He didn't go for that one. I go and I pick up the drill and into the bag it goes and onto the flight and then into Mexico we land. I didn't ask any questions, I just had a drill. About day three at this children's home we were going to shower the caregivers with their gift and what we found out first was that the ladles were for Lorena as she cooked and she told us I cook this food and as I stir the pot I pray over it and I ask God to make whatever I am cooking taste like heaven so that these mission teams will keep coming back to us and want to eat our food and help our children it was so good I mean so good like Jesus blessed that soup every time it was unbelievable and then finally, this little boy has the, the box, and in it is the drill. And he picks up the box, and he goes to walk over to this man. And I look at the leader next to me, and I said, who's the man? And they said, his name is Jose. And he had to sell this drill so that his daughter could go to school. And I went, for real? Yeah, you didn't know? I'm like, no, I just was told to bring a drill. And so the little boy starts to walk up the box, and it's heavy, and he's messing with it, and it's cute. And he goes to set it in Jose's lap. And his words are, Jose, this is the drill that we have been praying for. I know it. It is in the box. And I looked at that kid, and I'm like, why are you stealing my thunder, man? Like, I brought the drill. And his response, he looked at Jose, and he was like, you have to open it. You have to open it now. There's a drill in there. And all the boys that are building ships start to gather around Jose and the box is open, and Jose pulls the drill out, and like a cowboy, he holds it up in the air, and is just like, Woo! and just starts firing the drill. No, there wasn't a dry eye there. And he sets it down, 
in his lap. And he ignores everyone else that's in the space. And he asks the boys to lay their hands on the drill. And he says, we need to pray to God a prayer of thanksgiving. Because last month, we needed to go to school. This month, I guess God wants us to build some stuff. It's time to get back to your ships. We left, packed up, are getting ready to head to the airport. It's a 45 minute drive between our campus and this children's home. And it's getting late into the evening and someone pokes their head in the door and says, Chris, someone's here to see you. And I'm like, yes, tacos. Because I have people that work for me getting tacos every day while we're there. And I walk out and it's Jose. And Jose walks me down to his truck. And in the bed of his truck is a ship. His ship. The first one he made. And he says, I needed you to go home. Knowing. You are a good captain. Don't forget to sail. And I said, how in the world am I going to get that on an airplane? So it rode in the cockpit with the pilots on two flights on the way home. Because I wasn't checking that thing. No way. If you'd asked me to write my legacy, it doesn't include a wooden ship built by a caregiver in Monterey, Mexico. I'm glad that there's someone else writing stories that brings meaning to meaningless things like cordless drills and boats. It's not about how much we have. It's about whether or not we've forgotten to sail. Let's pray. Father, in this moment I praise you. Ah, for Jose and how he just keeps building boats with young men and teaching them to sail. I praise you for families who decide that their country, their people, the people of earth in their spaces deserve the gospel as much as anyone else through leadership, through churches. And we pray for Echo that we would find meaning past the meaninglessness because there are great captains in this room. I pray that you remind us to never forget to sail. And it's in you that we pray. Amen.